All right, well, uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to be at uh, chapter 3. We're actually going to finish chapter 3 today, Lord willing. And uh, we will cross over into a new section in 1 Thessalonians uh, next week, which will be uh, exciting and uh, convicting for sure, I promise you. Um, We're going to look at verses 11 through 13, uh, where we uh, find a prayer. Prayer is a uh, mysterious, thing in some way, uh, mysterious thing in some ways, isn't it? Uh, if you stop and think what prayer uh, really is, I think you will find it to be quite uh, awesome, really. And I don't throw around the word awesome terribly much. Um, it, it truly should be amazing to you, um, as it is to me, that we can enter into dialogue with the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. Uh, And not only are we encouraged to do so all throughout Scripture, but we are commanded to pray to God, which means that prayer is for our good. It's not as though it's like, yeah, you know, I mean, prayer, that's a great thing. It can really help, right? You know, people who often meet Christians are like, oh, prayer, that's such a nice thing for you, right? You know, you say, can I pray for you? They say, yeah, sure, go ahead and pray. You know, they just kind of think of prayer as kind of a, uh, a, a nice little add-on, a, a little crutch for Christians to have. But prayer is for our good. It was Jesus who, uh, before he gave us the Lord's Prayer, he said, pray then like this. Now, I think we often rush over those words to get to the content of the Lord's Prayer. And that is a terrible mistake. Uh, obviously, we need to know how to pray. It's very good to go to the Lord's Prayer to find out what to pray and how to pray. Um, but there is no point in knowing how to pray if we do not stop and realize that we must pray. It's no good knowing what to pray for if you don't know that you must pray. The first word of that sentence in the Greek is pray. And the word, it, 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 it is an imperative Verb, which means it is a command. It is not optional. So if we do not respond to God's command to pray, then we are living in disobedience. I think we could safely say a Christian who does not pray is not a Christian at all. Uh, Prayer is essential to who we are as Christians. We cannot function as a child of God without prayer. It was Martin Luther who said to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. So we must pray. Now let's talk about how to pray or about the right kind of praying. That's what we're talking about today, the right kind of praying. Now the Lord's Prayer, of course, is a a great place to start. Maybe we might even say the best place to start. But I am not preaching through Matthew right now. I am preaching through 1 Thessalonians. And so we come today to this prayer in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, what could be called a pastoral, a pastoral prayer par excellence, which is to say a, a, a very good, maybe the best pastoral prayer you might find, uh, a, a prayer that a pastor would pray concerning his people. Uh, but we also find in here not just what a pastor ought to pray, but uh, we learn about what Christians ought to pray, which means that while in the last few sermons we've learned about the right kind of faith, today we are going to start talking about the right kind of prayer. And in this short prayer, just 
just four verses, um, we learn, sorry, uh, three verses, we learn about such things as who we should pray to. We learn about uh, what we should pray, uh, and we learn about the goal of prayer. Now, because this prayer is a prayer for the church, we're not only going to learn about uh, prayer, but because Paul is going to pray specific things for the church, we're also going to learn about life as Christians. Uh, And so we'll talk about things such as God's direction in our life, and God's work in our life, and God's will for our lives. So this uh, text and this sermon is jam-packed. And if you leave this place with nothing to apply, then uh, I don't know what to tell you. So uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, uh, 11 through 13. Uh, these are the words of the Lord. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So uh, Paul has spent a great deal of time in in this first section in 1 Thessalonians uh, doing three things in particular. Uh, He has been telling the Thessalonians about his love for them. Uh, That is something that has just been so, so uh, overwhelmingly blatant in this letter. Paul really, really loves the church in Thessalonica. I mean, he loves other churches as well. Uh, But he certainly seems to have a special bond with the church in Thessalonica. He's also told them about his desire to be with them uh, several times, which he does again in this, or he he talks about in his prayer. Uh, And then in light of these two things, he has also told them that he sent Timothy to them because he couldn't make this trip. So now Timothy has returned to Paul. He reports that the faith of the Thessalonians is genuine. They are continuing to trust in God. They're living by faith in the face of afflictions. Now, as you may recall, last week we talked about uh, how Paul had a resolved faith, which was demonstrated by his willingness to sacrifice having Timothy with him. Uh, But Paul also demonstrates his love for the Thessalonians and his faith in God in another way. So one of the ways he demonstrates his love for them and his faith in God is by sending Timothy. Another way is by how he prays for them. His prayer for them demonstrates his love for them and his faith in God. So... What we find today, uh, in verse 10, if you look, Paul tells them that he, uh, that they, he prays for them, and then he just breaks out into a prayer. So he breaks out into a prayer, and he records this prayer for them. So Paul clearly understands the necessity of prayer, and he knows what he ought to pray for. And God has been so gracious to us in preserving this prayer for us to look at Today, so we can be blessed to study it as we learn about three things that Paul prayed for the church in Thessalonica, three things which really should inform our prayers, uh, three things which help us learn uh, about what God wants for us. And those three things are God's direction in our lives, God's work in our lives, and God's will for our lives. So we're going to learn about prayer throughout this, but but uh, ultimately we're going to learn about God's direction in our lives, his work in our lives, and his will for our lives. And tell me that those aren't three things that every Christian wants to know more about. Uh, there are three things that I get asked questions about all the time. How do, I, uh, how do I find God's direction for my life? How is it that God works in my life? And what is God's will for my life? So when we left First Thessalonians last week, Paul had just told the Thessalonians about something he prayed for them. And now he breaks out into this prayer. And this is what we find before us. So uh, in verse 10, 
He tells them why he wanted to send Timothy, uh, or why he wanted to go to them, sorry, to supply what is lacking in their faith. So if you recall, if you were here last week, there were things that Paul had not yet taught the Thessalonians, things that they needed to know so that they could live more by faith. And this was a great concern for him. And so he says, we want to go. And now he tells us that he prays to that end. And so in verse 11, he says, he, he literally prays, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Paul has this desire. He wants to be with them. He thinks it's a good desire. He doesn't know whether or not he's going to get to them or not. Thus far, Satan has hindered them. But now he prays to God and says, please direct our way to the Thessalonians. Now, before we get to that, let's just stop for a moment and consider who it is he, he prays to. And, and this is very important here. Uh, uh, if you recall in the Lord's Prayer, uh, Jesus tells us to pray primarily to our Father in heaven. This is how you pray, our Father who art in heaven. Now, you know, we learn a, a, a great deal about prayer uh, from a quick consideration of who we are to pray to. And this is what, what Paul prays. He says, now may our God and Father himself, he addresses our God and Father. So it, I don't know if you stop and think about it, but when you address God as Father, you're actually reminding yourself of some things about the God whom you are praying to. Um, primarily, when you say our Father, God is a perfect Father. He's a heavenly Father. Now, what does a perfect Father do for his children? He cares for his children. He loves his children. He has compassion on his children. He hears his children, right? A compassionate Father, a child comes to talk to him and say, hey, get out of here, I'm busy right now. No, he has compassion and he welcomes his child into his presence. And so every time you pray, our father, don't just breeze over that title. Don't just breeze over who it is that you are praying to. You are praying to the one who loves you and cares for you as his child, because that is who you are. So when you pray, our father, be reminded that you are his child now, it's also to pray to our Father is a reminder that our God knows what is best and will do what is in accordance with his perfect will, which is to say a, a good father does what is best for his children, right? A bad father is selfish and does what is best for himself. A good father does what is best for his children. And so when we pray our Father, uh, keep in mind that the request you make to him will be answered uh, for your good. Now, you might not seem like they're for your good. You might not like the answers or the lack thereof, but uh, you can trust that when you pray to your father, if you truly believe that he is your heavenly father, then he will do, uh, then you must then also believe that he will do what is good for you. Now, the third thing you, you say when you pray to our father is that you pray to our father in heaven. Now, a father in heaven is unlike a father on the earth. Because to say that he is our father in heaven, which is to say he has all power and all majesty, and he does whatever he wills. So not only are you praying to your father who cares for you, but you are praying to your father who has all the power to do what he will do for your good, right? Sometimes we go to our earthly fathers and we ask for something, but we don't know whether they have the ability or the power to give us that thing that we need. But when we go to our father in heaven, we can trust that he loves us, that if our request is good and it is in accordance with his perfect will, then he has the power to answer that prayer in the affirmative. 
So this is why we primarily address our prayers to the Father, and for good reason. But according to our text, we must not rule out addressing the Son in prayer as, as well as Paul does here. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus. So he addresses the Father and he addresses the Son. Now, uh, the most examples in Scripture, if you look, most of the prayers are prayed to our Father. Uh, but there are a few examples of praying to the Son, like, for example, with Stephen. When Stephen was being wrongly uh, uh, um, executed, do you remember what he prayed? He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He prayed directly to the Son. Or uh, like John the Apostle, as you hear me quote his words many times at the end of a sermon, uh, in his closing comments in Revelation, he prays, come, Lord Jesus. So, uh, you know, we do find a few examples. So it's, it's certainly not inappropriate to pray uh, to the Son. Now, as I said, I, I, I have no problems uh, hiding the fact that I think we should primarily address our prayers to the Father uh, because of what Jesus teaches in the Lord's Prayer, as well as the example we see from Paul. But prayers to the Son are most certainly appropriate, and, and they do something very important, right? So just as when you pray to the Father, you're saying something, when you pray to the Son, you're also saying something. And in particular, you are demonstrating the great truth which Jesus once spoke in John 10, verse 30, when he said, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. So when we pray to Jesus, we are affirming the great truth of Jesus' full divinity, that he is truly God. Now, I know all of this might just kind of be getting into the weeds a little bit, but I think it's, it's very important to think of these things because, you know, we worship the triune God, right? So, uh, because the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, and because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one God, the triune God, our prayers are offered to that one God. So we, we address our prayer to the Father, or we address our prayer to the Son, but when we pray to one, we pray to all. When we pray to God, we pray to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are Trinitarians unashamedly. And so when we offer a prayer, our prayer is offered ultimately to that one God. So when Paul prays to the Father, he reminds the Thessalonians of God's love and his care and his compassion. And when he includes the Son in his prayers, in his address, he also reminds them that Jesus is God and that we worship the triune God, who is one God and consists of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Paul teaches us about who we pray to, but he most certainly does not stop there, which brings us to what he prays. His first prayer is that God will direct our way to you. So he has told them that he desires to visit them for an important reason, to instruct them uh, so that they can better live by faith. And now he ensures that they know who is responsible if that happens. You recall he had said prior that Satan had hindered his trip. And now he prays to God basically to ask him to remove the roadblocks. Satan had put up roadblocks, whatever they were, and now he indicates very clearly the one who has the power to knock down these roadblocks, which is, is God, if he should choose to do so. Paul is not demanding that God do this. He says, may, may our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Not, you better do it. You ought to be careful about making prayers like that, right? Our prayers should be may, may you. Paul doesn't know 
what is right or wrong in this situation. He doesn't know if he should go to the, he know he thinks it would be a good thing. He doesn't know if he's going to make it. And so he, he pleads with God, may, may you be so gracious as to direct our way to the Thessalonians. So th- this is exactly then what we ought to do if we have a godly desire. If you have a godly desire, um, you should pray for God's direction in your life. And, and it's important to realize that God gives direction in our lives in many ways, right? Uh, the first way, of course, is through his word, right? You know this is what I, I'm going to say. Whenever we have a desire, uh, the first thing that we must do is we must search God's word to see whether there is any clear instruction about this desire that we have. Maybe there's a clear command uh, or, or there's a, a clear condemnation. You realize, okay, I, I shouldn't do that thing. I don't have to pray for it. Or maybe there's a, a, a command that this is a good thing and you still should pray for it. Maybe there's an example to follow or not follow in Scripture. You know, you wonder what you should do in a situation. You come across this example in Scripture. Oh, okay, this person did this and he was commended for it. This person did this and he was condemned for it. There you go. Or maybe there's a principle or a piece of practical wisdom which will help you make a decision in a difficult situation. Now, that said, you might search the Scriptures and you say, well, I can't find anything one way or the other. It still seems like a, a, a good desire to me. Well, the next way that God directs is through his providence. And a few weeks ago, a Wednesday night, I said I talk about providence a lot, uh, but so does scripture. And so it's something we must know about. Now, when it comes to a definition of providence, there are two definitions that I think sum up providence the best. Um, and I have shared these with you a few times, so if these definitions sound familiar to you, good. That is exactly what I want. I want you to go, yeah, I remember those. Now, if you don't remember these, well, I'm going to keep bringing them at you. So the first one is uh, from a catechism. A catechism is something that we use to teach uh, disciples about uh, theology, and and this is from... um, Spurgeon's Puritan Catechism, which is basically copied from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and this is how it defines uh, providence. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, governing all his creatures and their actions. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving of all his creatures and all their actions. A second definition is from a much different resource, uh, a modern resource, a little book that uh, many of you know that I love. It's called the Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms. And it says, providence refers to God's superintending activity over human action and human history, bringing creation to its divinely determined goal. So you could say then that providence is the means by which God ensures that what he decrees actually comes to be, right? We, we learn in Scripture, in Ephesians 1, verse 11, that he works all things, all things, according to the counsel of his will. And the way he does that is through his providence, his superintending work, his, his, his governance of all his creatures and all their actions. So if there is something that you desire, something you want to do, and Scripture doesn't give you a yay or a nay, you are free to pursue that desire. You can attempt to do that thing or work to the end of this thing to which you uh, desire. Now, if God does not want you to do it, he will ensure that you do not do it. And the way that he will do that 
is through his providence, right? And so if scripture doesn't give you a yay or nay on something and you have a godly desire, then I say, have at it. Give it a whirl. (laughs) See how it goes, right? But, you know, there's something else that you can do than than just pursue that desire because maybe it's a desire that you don't have any any control over, any, any power over. Well, the other thing that you can do is you can pray. You can ask God to remove roadblocks, to open a way, to work things out so that you can have this godly desire or do this thing that you want to do. Uh, Like with Paul, Paul wanted to go back to Thessalonica. To my understanding, we have no knowledge that he did. So we don't know whether he did or not, uh, but he knew what he ought to do in that situation, to pray to God. And you can do likewise, and maybe God will grant you your desire, and maybe he won't. But if you receive what you desire or you get to do what you want, you need to understand that that is because of God's providence. He has governed all his creatures and all their actions in such a way that you get to do this thing that you get to do. Um, So often when we want something, we look to God for a miracle. I mean, okay, you know, that's all right. Um, But God most often does not work through miracles, does he? Most often, he works through his ordinary means of providence, of his superintending work. And to me, to me, that is something much better than a miracle. I, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't even say that. I, I'm just off, run, running off the cuff here for a sec. But to know that God is uh, uh, superintending everything that happens in this world, and because of that uh, governing work, I get, I get certain things, that to me is much, much more powerful than a miracle like a miracle is kind of like a a one-off thing in the middle of something right um i don't know maybe i'm crazy but uh, god's providence to me is a much greater comfort than to know that he performs miracles i mean he does perform miracles make no mistake i'm not discounting his miracles but his his providence to me is a much more comforting doctrine than the fact that he has the power to do miracles because his providence speaks to the power that he has to ensure that everything in this world the flap of a fly's wings he uses everything for 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 my good that's 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 beyond like that's as mysterious as prayer anyway getting back to my notes here uh, the third thing so we've got god's word that he directs us through we've got his providence uh, of course we must acknowledge the work of his holy spirit um we cannot neglect that. And so uh, we know, according to John 17, 17, that he, he, the Spirit works through his word to sanctify us, right? To make us more holy so that we can make more wise decisions and have more godly desires. Uh, we learn in Romans 8, verse 8 and 10, that the Spirit empowers and enables us to please God, whether it be with our desires or our decisions or our actions. And, and we learn in John 14, 16 through 21, that the Spirit helps us follow Jesus, and keep his commands. So uh, as Paul seeks God's direction in his life, in this case concerning a trip to Thessalonica, I I pray that we will seek God's direction in our lives and that our prayer lives will reflect that as we pray to our Heavenly Father and to the Lord Jesus. Now, uh, Paul moves on now. He's voiced his prayer concerning his desire. He now prays for what he desires for the Thessalonians. Uh, and, and it begins there in verse uh, 12. He says, may the Lord make you uh, increase and abound in love for one another. So after praying for God's direction in his own life, he prays 
for God to work in the lives of the saints in Thessalonica because he wants them to love one another more and better. Uh, now, I think it's, it's hard to summarize uh, what should mark our relationships with one another in the church. Uh, it's hard to think of a word better than love, right? Lo- love one another. That seems to me, if you said, how should our relationships function in the church? We should love one another. Maybe you've heard of the one another's in scripture. There's several of them. Uh, we learn in 2 Corinthians that we should comfort one another. And in Galatians 5, we should serve one another. And in Ephesians 4, we should be kind to one another. And in Ephes- uh, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, we learn we should forgive one another. And then again, Colossians 3, we should bear with one another. Uh, uh, we should teach and admonish one another. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, Hebrews 3, we should encourage one another. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, we should do good to one another. James 5, we should confess our sins to one another. And also James 5, we should pray for one another. All of these one another's that we find in scripture um, can really be summarized under one heading, one command, which we find many places, like John 13, John 15, Romans 12, 1 Thessalonians 4, and 1 Peter. It can all be summarized as loving one another. Uh, and to be sure, like that is your first responsibility in your relationship with your fellow church members. It's to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is something we see in our text as Paul gives prominence to love for the church. Your first responsibility is to love the church. Uh, we see this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. You might recall when I preached through Galatians, uh, I talked about this there and I talk about it here again because we find it again. In Galatians 6, Paul says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Really? I have to give priority to the church? Yes. Really? I have to focus more on loving the church before I love people outside the church? Yes. That's exactly what he says, especially. And this is what we find in our text. He, 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 he says, uh, he prays that God will make them increase, increase and abound in love for one another. And, and for all. But first, for love for one another. Uh, so, so we see here that Paul says we should love one another, but he does also say that we should love all people. Uh, but notice the example he gives. Uh, he prays that the Lord will make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Now that's, you could just kind of breeze over that, right? But that's an important point. How did Paul love the Thessalonians? Do you recall? He went there, and he preached the gospel to them while they were worshiping idols. He pled with them to look to Christ for salvation. He called them to repentance and faith. And he now says, love the world like we loved you. And that is not how the world defines love. I promise you that. Uh, the world says it is loving to encourage others to follow their hearts. When the Bible says that their hearts are deceitful above all things and very wicked. The world says it's loving to affirm others in their sin when the Bible says that we should call all people everywhere to repent of their sin. The world thinks it is loving to promote selfishness and sexual sin and murder and rebellion against God when the Bible says that engaging such things will one day put you on the receiving end of God's righteous wrath. In short, what the world calls love, the Bible calls hatred. If we are to love all people, we must exalt Christ. 
If we are to love all people, we must preach the gospel. And if we are to love all people, we must call all people everywhere to turn to Christ and plead with him for mercy. So if we truly love people, we will want what is best for them. And of course, what is best for them is clearly their salvation. Now, I want to acknowledge something here that I know is going to be a surprise to you all. It is hard to love people sometimes. I know you're all as surprised as I was when I came to learn this this week. It's hard to love people sometimes. Especially to love all people sometimes. When, the way, when what the Bible calls loving, the world calls hateful. But there is really good news. This is... Oh, this is good news. I'm telling you, this is the best news you are ever going to hear. If you have a problem loving people sometimes, which maybe you all don't have that problem. Maybe that's just specific to me. Yeah, right. Um, but if you have trouble loving people, like the person in front of you that just is going so slow, man, I have a hard time loving that guy. Or the person that cuts you off. Or the waitress that takes so long to bring you your food, right? Some people are hard to love. There is good news. And it's found here in our text. As Paul prays to the Lord to make the Thessalonians increase in love for one another and for all. Did you catch that? He prays that God will make them love people. That is a sweet sound to my ears as someone who has a hard time loving people sometimes. God is the one who makes us increase and abound in love. Have you ever wondered why you love these people sitting around you? Why would I love all of you? Why would you love each other? We're from different places. We have different desires. We are different ages. We have different interests. What would you think that would bring us all together and love one another? It's only by the grace of God. He makes us love one another. If you ever wonder why you love all of these people, how you even ended up in the same place as these people and how you have a concern for all of these people, it is God. God did that and God continues to do that. The only question we need to ask ourselves is do we want to increase and abound in love? If you don't, you best talk to me afterwards because we got problems. But if you do, then there's something very simple for you to do. Pray to God and ask him to make you increase and love for one another. Pray to God and ask him to make me increase and abound in love for one another. Pray to God and ask him to make everyone around you increase and abound in love for one another. There is only one way where we are going to experience true godly biblical unity in this church, and it is for our love for one another to increase. And there is only one way that we are going to be the witness to this world that we are called to be, and that is for God to make us to increase and abound in love for all. So I, 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 I plead with you, I, I, I beg you, pray to God and ask him to make us increase and abound in love for one another. I mean, none of you, I'm sure, think that you love uh, people perfectly or as well as you ought to. And so this is something we all ought to pray for. And then in response to his work, uh, God's work in our lives, we should then show love to one one another. Love is shown forth in, in action. And so uh, there you have it. 
That's uh, God's work in our life to make us increase and abound in love. Now, uh, after talking about God's direction and his work, that's just one last thing we got to get to, and that's God's will for our lives. And, and this third point is also going to uh, prepare us for next week. Next week, we're going to talk about what we're going to talk about right here for just a minute. We're going to talk about it through the whole sermon next week, and it is uh, sanctification. So after Paul prays that God will make the Thessalonians increase and abound in love, he then adds, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. So uh, important thing, there's a clear connection there between love and holiness, right? He, he says, may our God and Father... Uh, 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 may the Lord sorry, make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as you do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Uh, so what we learn here, it's as we grow in love for one another that we grow in holiness. The, the more we love one another, the more holy we become. The more we love all, the more holy we become because the more we love one another and the more we love all, the more we become like God, who is love. So if God makes us increase and abound in love, then God is the one who is responsible for our growth in holiness, which is exactly what we find in Scripture when Jesus uh, said, sanctify them in the truth, right? He says to the Father, sanctify them in the truth, and then he says, your word is truth. So both Paul and and Jesus know that God is the one who sanctifies. Uh, Remember that for next week, okay? God is the one who sanctifies. You will want to remember that for next week, Um, and it's what Paul wants for the church. And, and quite frankly, it is what I, I want for you all. There is actually nothing I want more for you than for you to grow in holiness. I, I quite frankly don't care about your job or about your home uh, or about your bank account or about your wardrobe. You know, not to say that those things aren't important, but ultimately what I care about is your sanctification. Uh, I, I want you to grow in holiness. I want you to become more like Jesus. There's quite literally nothing I want more for you all. And it is so interesting to me, again, God's providence, that as I'm working on this sermon, which was two weeks ago, um, somebody from the church uh, texts me an article. And, and the article is titled, The Single Most Encouraging Thing for a Pastor. Right? So my, my uh, interest is peaked. I, I, I'm interested. So I, I get into this article, and he mentions some things which you might think would encourage your pastor. I mean, you know, they, they could be encouraging. But then after going over these things that could encourage a pastor, he says there's lots of other possible candidates of things that would encourage a pastor. He then says all sorts of things we might find encouraging for all sorts of different reasons. And that's true. Right? That's true. You know, there's lots of things that are, are encouraging to a pastor, right? But he says, I think there's one standout thing that will encourage your pastor more than anything else. Growth. Specifically, growth in your knowledge and love for the Lord Jesus that leads to meaningful change. Now, I responded to the person who sent me that uh, with one word. One word text, right? You, you got to be you know, succinct and clear. Truth. I am encouraged by a number of things as a pastor, but there is nothing more encouraging than seeing you all become more sanctified. I want you to trust and worship God more. 
I want you to love God and others more. I want you to know and obey God's commands more. I want you to hate sin more and be quicker to repent. I want you to rejoice in Jesus. I want you to follow him more. I want you to rely on the work of the Spirit more so that you will please God more. In short, what I want for you is holiness. And there is nothing I want more for you than that. And I want you to keep growing in holiness. That, again, keep that in mind for next week. I want you to never be satisfied with how holy you are in this life, not until Jesus returns or calls you home. You see, the sanctification that Paul actually talks about in our text is not progressive sanctification. I have spoken briefly about progressive sanctification, and I will speak extensively about progressive sanctification next Sunday. But this week, Paul's emphasis is, in fact, on perfect sanctification, because he prays here that God will establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father when at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So while I have made clear my desire for you all, which is God's will for you, right, to grow in sanctification, I must recognize that you will not become perfectly sanctified in this life. You will not reach, reach a state of sinlessness in this life. You will not become blameless in holiness in this life. But you will in the life to come. If, there is an if, and it's a big if, if you are united to Christ. You see, while we become more righteous in this life, there is one and only one reason that is so, and it is as Jeremiah told Israel, Yahweh is our righteousness. In and of ourselves, we have no righteousness. We come into this world as enemies of God, as sinners who sin, as depraved wretches. And that is what we remain if we remain separated from Christ. But the good news is that, is that we do not have to remain that way. We can be united to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit if you will come to Christ and plead for him, plead with him for mercy. If you will trust him as Savior and Lord, as the one who lived a perfect life for you, as the one who died a sacrificial death for you, as the one who rose from the grave for you, and as the one who ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns and rules over you, then you will be forgiven of your sins, you will be declared righteous in his sight, you will be reconciled to God, and you will no longer be his enemy, but instead you will be his child. His child who will be sanctified because you will be his child who has been sanctified, set apart for him and his glory. You will go from a life of living for your own glory according to the standards of this world and you will begin living a life for his glory according to his standards. And while we will not be made perfectly holy in this life, we will when Jesus returns or calls us home to his side. In short, if God has saved you, he will sanctify you once and for all, never to sin or give in to temptation again, never to disobey God again, never to worship idols again, never to take your eyes off Jesus again, never to live to please yourself instead of God. He will make us blameless in holiness, not because of us, but because of God. It's as Paul tells the Corinthians, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now that is good news 
right there. Not only does God justify us, he sanctifies us as well. And he will sanctify us completely at the return of Christ, which is why we should pray to God and ask him to sanctify us progressively in this life. If you believe that one day you will be perfectly sanctified, then you should pray to God and ask him to sanctify you in this life and in the life to come. If you recall, Paul had just recently received a report from Timothy that the Thessalonians' faith is genuine and they are trusting Jesus, which, which means they are united to Christ, which means that they will be made blameless in holiness at the return of Christ, which means... Here it is, folks, that Paul is praying for something that he knows will happen. Now, that should inform how we pray. Like God worked through Paul's prayer to accomplish his will, God chooses to work through our prayers to accomplish his will also, which means it is incumbent upon us to pray in accordance with God's will, his revealed will, just as Paul did. Which brings us back to where we began, the necessity of prayer. Like I said at the outset of the sermon, prayer is a mysterious thing. I find it difficult to come up with words to express the fact that, that God somehow works through our prayers. I, I don't know how to explain that to you. Uh, and it's hard to understand why, in fact, God chooses to work through our prayers. It's a mysterious Thing, But one thing that I can tell you, and it is that God responds to our prayers and he is pleased to work through our prayers, which is why Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you for everyone who asks receives, which means if you don't ask, you don't receive. That is mind blowing. So while how and why God works through our prayers is mysterious to me, there is no mystery when it concerns whether we should pray or not. Like I said, we must pray. Like Luther said, for the Christian, prayer is like breathing air, which is to say we need it to live. Uh, furthermore, because Jesus commands that we pray, we need prayer if we wish to be obedient. Now, as for what we should pray, thanks to Paul's prayer uh, here for the sessions, we've learned that, uh, today that we should pray for what God's word says we should pray about, which is to say we should pray that God will do what he promises to do. We should pray that God will do what God promises to do. Because if we don't, do we really believe his promises? Jesus commands we pray, and then he chooses to work through our prayers. And so if we want our prayers to be answered, if you find yourself praying for things and you don't get an answer, keep praying for them. I mean, you know, we all have loved ones not serving the Lord, right? Do we stop praying that God will save them? Of course not. How dare you, right? Keep praying for those things. And maybe you have some godly desire or something you want to do in life that's a good thing. Keep praying for it, right? Maybe it will happen. Maybe it will not happen. But if I can encourage you to do one thing, um, if you find yourself discouraged because you pray for something over and over and over again, and, and God doesn't answer your prayer in the affirmative, then can I suggest that you start praying for some things that you know he will answer in the affirmative? It will just remind you that God uh, keeps his promises, and it will remind you of the things that we ought to be uh, living for. 
Um, so, so immerse yourself in God's word, first of all, right? You need to seek to know what God's will is for your life. Uh, and then pray that he will keep his promises. And then rest in the knowledge that he will keep his promises. Because as Paul also said to the church in Corinth, the son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. That would be confusing. But in him, it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Now, as we wrap things up, and I am wrapping things up here, when I say in conclusion today, I am in conclusion. I know I'm on page 16. Usually I'm done at page 13. So I recognize we're, we got to be near the end here. But I want to acknowledge something before we wrap up this sermon on prayer. Because I know some of you have very strong prayer lives. And so uh, I just want to say, I hope that you who have strong prayer lives were encouraged to, by today's sermon. That, that you thought, yeah, man, that is the right kind of prayer. And that's how things are going. Like, I know, I know, you know, you're perfect in the area of prayer. But I know some of you have very strong prayer lives. And, and, and you're, you're uh, you know, what people would call a prayer warrior, which, I mean, kind of is, we really shouldn't have different classes of prayers. But nevertheless, you know what I'm talking about here. So, so for you who uh, have a very strong prayer life, I hope that you were encouraged by today's sermon. But then on the other hand, I know, I know some of you have struggling prayer lives. I have had more than a few Christians, church members, come to me and talk about their struggle when it comes to the issue of prayer. Um, and my uh, suspicion, uh, a pretty strong suspicion, is that you are feeling fairly rebuked today. Uh, and I want to say that that is something to thank God for. Uh, do not leave discouraged because you're feeling rebuked today. Leave encouraged that you are feeling rebuked because as the author of Hebrews says, the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. So, so whether, uh, wherever you are in your prayer life, um, whether you were encouraged or rebuked or maybe a little bit of both today, I, I think that we can all agree that learning to pray according to God's will is really a lesson which takes a lifetime to learn, doesn't it, right? We've all heard that elderly saint pray a prayer and wonder, man, I want to pray like that, right? There's a reason. They've been learning to pray all of their lives, right? Um, so for that reason, you know, I, I pray, I pray that God will make you leave today, that God will make you leave today, determined to trust in him more, and so to pray to him more, whether you were encouraged or rebuked, because we can all, all do better. Uh, and, and I hope that when you get to praying, that you will pray these three things. That you will pray for God's direction in our lives. Not just your own life, but for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have difficult decisions to make. We all have different things going on in our life. Uh, we're all at different places. So pray for God's direction in all our lives. That he will guide our every thought, our every word, our every desire, our every deed, our every step, our every, everything. Pray for God's direction in our lives. And then pray for God to increase our love for each other and for all people so that we will experience more unity here. And then finally, in preparation for next week's sermon, pray that God will sanctify us progressively in this life and that he will sanctify us perfectly at the return of Christ because that 
is the right kind of prayer.